0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org.
1: I would like to introduce Mr. Uh, Pastor Kyle Stratton. Kyle grew up in Palmdale, California, and despite growing up in a Christian home, he wasn't saved until he was 18 years old. He attended college at the Masters University and graduated with a bachelor's degree in history in 2016. He was then hired as a pastoral intern at his home church, Berean Fellowship Church, under the leadership of Daryl Sparks. Kyle became a full time teaching pastor in 2021. Kyle recently completed his Master of Divinity from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is married to Tiffany, and the two of them are fostering to adopt their son, who moved in with them in 2020. Kyle enjoys reading and preaching God's word, fellowshipping with his people, the beach, reading, music, and fantasy football. Now, here is what Pastor Sherman has to say about Kyle. Kyle is also a very good friend and colleague. He is bright, committed to the gospel, the word of God, and truly loved God's people. Also, his friendship has been a huge encouragement to Pastor Sherman, especially these last few years, and I'm honored to have him in this pulpit. Please help me give a warm FBC Boron welcome to Pastor Kyle Stratton.
0: To answer the question in your minds, yes, I am old enough to drive, and I'm honored to be here, and uh, with what Sherman said, I also want to say I am equally blessed by his friendship also and his gospel ministry. He's been a good friend to me. Uh, we have a lot of fun making jokes at each other. Uh, he, he he always pokes fun at me being a fanboy of Albert Moeller, and, uh, well, I've Never have a shortage of stuff to poke fun of him about, so we have a good little uh, friendship going back. But I'm happy to be preaching in his pulpit today and be able to preaching to you all God's Word. Uh, and yes, yeah, Sam's right. This is a double dose of new stuff for you guys today, isn't it? New preacher, new worship, but same God and same gospel, right? Amen to that. Amen to that. Well, if you all have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 today. Matthew chapter 6. And we will be in verses 19 through 34. Now, when I told Sherman my passage earlier in the week, he uh, he pointed out to me that I'm going to be doing things a little bit differently because, as you know, Pastor Sherman's a very thorough and good teacher which means he goes through his sermons about four verses at a time every time he comes here on a Sunday. So hopefully, I'm not overwhelming you all with 16 verses. We're not going to be here all day. We're going to have a good time of of reading this word here. Um, I don't know if you all usually stand when you read the word, but this is what I do with my own church, so maybe let's try something different. If you all don't mind standing, if you're willing and able, we'll read through God's word here. This is what For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the words he spoke and the truth he has given to us. I pray we would hear his message. And I pray, Lord, that our lives and our hearts would change in light of what he has said. Thank you for your grace and thank you for your truth. It is your son's name I pray these things. Amen. Amen. Y'all may have seen. I'm gonna drop some breaking news for everybody. Life has gotten a little expensive these days, hasn't it? The economy is what it is. I've been told to keep waiting and waiting for a crash in the housing market. I'm still waiting. Inflation does what it does. And this is how I know things have gotten bad is I went to a different city last week They had gas under $6 a gallon, and I thought, this is the land of milk and honey right here. This is where it's at. Life has gotten very expensive, and the world seems to be falling into a panic over it. And we should make no mistake. If we do not have the hope of Christ, if anybody doesn't have that hope, but puts their hope into the world and they have every reason to panic and to be afraid. If there's somebody who understood perfectly the peace a person can have and the link that peace has to where they put their hope in, it was our Lord and our Savior Christ. And he, in this passage here, explains what happens when somebody puts their hope in, and their peace into this world. And he also explains to us when it comes to wealth, when it comes to money, when it comes to anything we serve, really, all of it pales in comparison to serving Christ. And we find these words here in the middle of what is probably Jesus' most famous speech of all time, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Quite possibly, my favorite passage in all of Scripture here. And as we begin to uh, move on to this teaching here, it's always good to put things into context. When we do that, we find out what our passage is saying to us, and also, at the same time, what it's not saying to us. Both are important. So in the passage of the Sermon on the Mount, here is kind of the the big-picture context of why Jesus is giving uh, this message right here. The big picture context is he is explaining what kingdom living is to us. Because in the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of God is an incredibly important topic. We think of how many parables Jesus speaks of in this gospel by introducing them as this is what the kingdom of God is like. And here he is explaining further to his disciples what the kingdom of God looks like and what its dwellers, the disciples of Christ, also look like. And he's not preaching some type of legalism here as if you have to do all these things I say in order to be a true Christian because as all the Bible tells us, mankind is lost in sin and needs the gospel and forgiveness of Christ. But part of what Jesus is saying here is fitting into this bigger picture of what the kingdom of God is. And I kind of broke down a little bit what the rest of a Sermon on the Mount and its context has looked up into this point. There's a couple of sections that go up into here. Uh, the first section here we see the beginning of chapter 5 or what we know as the Beatitudes. And I think that a lot of us know what those are, right? You know, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. All these declarations that the blessed people are not the people you would expect to be blessed. And then he moves on to his next section in chapter five, when he explains what true living in the law actually looks like, and what the law actually needs. And here is where he clarifies that the law and what God requires of us is not just about actions it goes to the heart level this is why Jesus can say that even if you have never murdered somebody you can still fall into sin if you hate your brother in your heart obedience is a heart level issue and then it moves on into the next section where he explains what uh, true and false piety or true and false righteousness actually looks like He uses three examples. He uses the examples of giving, he uses the examples of fasting, and the example of prayer to show that to do these things wrongly is to do them for the sake of impressing other people. That's what the hypocrites do. The true obedient one of Christ are those who do things almost in secret. You know the the famous phrase that your right hand should not know what your left hand is doing which is a good phrase. Unfortunately, every time I say it, I become very aware of my hands and like don't know what to do with them for the rest of the time. So it, it's a good phrase, though. And in our context, Jesus is now speaking about the kingdom heart, the heart of the person who is a follower of Christ and what it looks like. And isn't it fitting that the first thing he talks about when he speaks about the kingdom heart is how the heart interacts with money, with wealth. It's almost like Jesus knows people very, very well. And he knows that this is a topic that needs to be addressed, especially by those who follow Christ. When walking through this passage to see what he says about wealth and what he says about money, he gives us, to start off, a don't do this and a do this. The first thing he says which not to do is to not lay up your treasures here on earth, right? And he also tells us very very clearly why we don't do this. Because they don't last here on earth. The common phrase, you can't take it with you, right? And you can't there's a lot of things that we do gather up for ourselves on this earth, things that we need, but also we, we like to have a bit extra. We like to have retirement. We like to have savings. We like to have possessions for our benefit. And all these things are not bad by themselves by any means whatsoever. A lot of these things are good. But at the end of the day, what we have to understand is they're not going to last forever, which means they're not worth your forever. Instead of laying up your treasures on earth, Christ tells us you are to lay up your treasures in heaven. And why we do that is the exact opposite of why we don't lay them up on earth. It's because treasures in heaven are everlasting. They are forever. Now part of the fact that the the fact that the treasures on earth are temporary This is part of the reason why people always need more things than what they have. It's part of the reason why even the richest people in this world are some of the most empty. And they are some of the most depressed. Because they're trying to fill a hole with things that were not meant to fill the hole. If there's one person in the Bible who also experienced this, it was the author of the book Ecclesiastes. I mean, look what he says here in Ecclesiastes 5. He says that whoever loves money never has money enough. That's a good quote right there. It's never enough. And then he also says in chapter 2 that I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. He got it all. And yet when I surveyed, all that I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. Well, doesn't that just make you feel great right now, huh? His entire life's work, everything he built up, he got everything he could have wanted. He lived the best rock star life he could have thought of. At the end of it, he said, it's nothing. It's pointless. It didn't satisfy which is why we lay up treasures in heaven. But we kind of have to ask, what are these treasures in heaven that we're talking about? Because there have been some ideas that some have come so far to say that actually doing good deeds will give you some type of financial compensation when you reach the end. I'm not so sure that's exactly what Jesus was talking about here. I think when we think of treasures in heaven, we should not overthink what Jesus is talking about. Uh, One author who wrote on this passage called treasures in heaven the investments of grace. And I kind of like how that's thought of there because the idea of laying up something in heaven means that we are investing something now into the heart of the Lord, into spiritual things. So for example, we think of things that last forever. One example is your soul. That is something that will last forever. And to lay that up in heaven is a call for us to be reconciled with our creator, to see what the biggest problem we actually have is, which is our distance made from our creator because of our sin. This is why we need Christ. We also do this when we serve our heavenly father. Because as this gospel tells us, the heavenly father remembers all that you do which could be a good thing, it could be a bad thing, depending upon where you stand with him at the end of the day. But he remembers all that we do, which is why we serve him. We also serve him and lay up these treasures in heaven when we serve each other. When you come here week by week as a church to grow each other, to edify each other, to serve each other in the ways that you do. We lay up these treasures. In fact, we are generous with our treasures here on earth. It's like the Proverbs say right here, a generous man will prosper. And he who refreshes others will be refreshed himself. A call to generosity. And these things that we do for each other, that we do for the Lord, they have an everlasting impact. They're not temporary like the treasures on Earth, And this leads into verse 21, which is one of the most famous quotes ever by our Lord, when he said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, in one sense, that's a promise. It's a promise that if we invest ourselves into the grace of God, we will be kept forever and protected by God but it's also a warning because let's remember what happens to the treasures on earth. Well, as Jesus said, the natural time of decay will happen to them, whether it's moth or whether it's rust, eventually they lose value. And anybody who has any kind of investment right now in their retirement or has felt the impact of inflation has realized themselves that their investments, they lose value over time. Nothing stays the same forever. Or thieves will break in and steal. Things will be destroyed that they've invested themselves into. So if the treasures on earth will be destroyed at some point, then what happens to those who put their heart in earthly treasures? It will be destroyed just as the earth will be. Yep, there it is. It will be destroyed just as the earth will be. So it's a warning. If we invest ourselves into temporary things, we will be temporary ourselves. And then we come into this next section that Christ is giving to us. And if we were just reading through this passage, just in our own personal time and had no background on it, These two verses here about the eye is the lamp of the body would almost seem kind of random, almost seem a little out of place. In fact, some of your translations might even have a subheading just for these two verses. It might say something about the lamp of the eye. Uh, If your translation or your Bible has that subheading, that's basically that Bible editor saying, I don't know, you figure it out. How does it fit? I don't know. But these two verses, and I'm going to read them right here, say that the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And we understand this better when we understand in the cultural context how people of this time, in this area, understood the eye. We think about the eye being a lamp. That means that it shines light forth. That means that how the eye looks on the world is dependent upon how that lamp is fueled by the heart. The eyes and the heart are very connected in an ancient understanding here. And, you know, this is not meant to be a science textbook of any way. It's not meant to give you an explanation of how eyeballs actually reflect light but it tells us that if our eye is healthy if how we look through it how our lamp shines is healthy then our whole body is full of light that tells us that the way we look at things the way that we look into the world is fueled by our heart but On the inverse, as Jesus says, if our eye is unhealthy, if our eye is bad, if it has what some commentators call the evil eye, which sounds like some Illuminati stuff, so I don't talk about it that way, but if you have the evil eye, the the corrupt eye, it is full of darkness. That means your whole body is darkness. And as Jesus himself says, if the light in you is full of darkness, how great is that darkness? These words right here are not random. They're not out of place. They tell us that the way we see things is fueled by where our heart is at. It tells us this incredibly important point. That darkness begins at the heart level. Darkness starts at the heart. And we will not see things correctly if our heart is darkened he moves on into verse 24 to speak more about the heart. And he tells us something new about it. He tells us, ultimately, that the heart can only truly be given to one thing. This is what verse 24 says. No one can serve two masters, for either he hates the one and loves the other, Or he's devoted to the one and he despises the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now we should be clear as to what this passage is not saying. This is not telling anybody that they cannot be a Christian and have money. Because some people would go so far as to say that. That's not what Jesus is trying to get at here. And despite how many groups want to make their Uh, their candidate, you know, Christ. How many people want to say that Jesus is their economic hero or representative? Jesus is not interested in talking about economics and politics at this point. It's not what he's getting at. What he's getting at is he is telling us you cannot serve money. Money cannot be your hope. Because for many people, money, wealth, It's not just about the value. Money and wealth is, for them, their security. It's their comfort. It's their hope. It's their purpose. But you cannot serve two purposes at the end of the day. And really, if we think about it, money and wealth, they're not good masters to serve. They're not good things to spend our lives worshiping. I think of in the Old Testament when the prophet Isaiah spoke about the foolishness of idolatry. He used the example of somebody who went into a forest, right? He cuts down a tree. He takes half of this tree and he uses it to give him the basic necessities for life. He builds his home. He uses it to cook his breakfast. He uses it to fix up his place. And then he takes the other half of this tree, he fashions an idol for himself, and he worships it. And we can't help but see just the irony of what he's doing there. That thing that this person is worshiping would not even be in his home if he had not gone out and gotten it there himself. What a terrible thing to worship. And then he used half of the things to build this idol to just do basic home maintenance. Why is he worshiping this thing? He's better than this idol he's worshiping. His idol has nothing unless he gives it value. And we can sit here and think, ah, silly idol worshiper. But we're no different as people. We think of our wealth. We think of something like money. That does not have value unless we as people, as societies, give it value. The things that we worship are completely dependent upon us as people to give them purpose. The things we worship, basically, are not better than us. Money and wealth should be a servant to us, not something that we serve ourselves. And ultimately, we use these things to serve the greatest master of all time, which is, of course, the Lord jesus christ and we can't serve both at the end of the day but many people try to there's actually a living example of somebody who tried to do this from the story of christ we think of the person who is known the gospels just as the rich young ruler this is a guy who comes to christ and he is He's making his case for himself. He wants to be a follower of Christ. He tells Christ, I have followed all the commandments most of my life. Which, as a reader, that's when I say, Yeah, sure, bud. Okay, for sure. But he makes his case that I am a servant of Christ. I'm a servant of the Lord. I've done things perfectly my life. Now, Jesus, he's not fooled for a second by who this guy is. He knows his heart. So he gives the rich young ruler a challenge. He tells this man that, okay, you want to be my servant. Here's what you got to do. Sell your possessions. Give them to the poor and needy. And what does the ruler do after that? He walks away. He walks away defeated, and sad, because he knows he can't do it. Because at the end of the day, he knows, just as Christ knew, which master he truly served. He may have looked like he served Christ. He may have wanted people to think that he did, but he served the master of his possessions. He served his wealth. And there are many people today, and I have fallen to the sin myself, who serve money, not God, without them even knowing, really, that they do. So how can we know? How can we know if we are serving the right master or not? I think a good thing to think about about where our heart is at and where we can know if we are falling into serving money is if our heart goes where our wealth goes. Kind of a rephrasing of what Jesus has already said, that where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And we think about our wealth. Think about our treasures on earth that we have. Eventually, as Jesus has said, either the slow process of decay and time will take over it or something will destroy it, a thief will break in and steal it, whatever that may mean. When that happens, and it will happen to everybody if it has not already happened, what is our heart when that happens? Right, there's an understandable grief an understandable disappointment when our treasures on earth don't pan out the way we expected them to. But if our hearts are only full of panic, only full of fear, if we feel we have lost hope and lost purpose and we only feel broken because our treasures on earth don't look the same way that we thought they would, then we may have our heart in the wrong place. Because wealth is meant to be a tool. And tools, they come and go. They can be replaced. But if we make wealth our master, then our hearts will be taken every which way, just as this world goes every which way. And what has to be said also is that you don't have to be a rich person to fall into this type of sin. I am not a rich person. Uh, I made sure of that as soon as I entered ministry. That's, That's how I know I will never be a rich person. And yet, I fall into envy when I see what other people have. I fall into fear and panic when I look at my retirement and it's not worth as much as it was yesterday. I fall into chaos and lose sleep when I think of how far it's going to be before I can really own property for myself. In these moments, my heart is in the wrong place. In these moments, I'm making wealth, earthly wealth, my master. and a good lesson about earthly wealth. It is a cruel master. It takes away your sleep. It takes away your peace. It takes away your hope. And this leads perfectly into the next section that Jesus is speaking of when he talks about his famous words on worry and anxiety. And there are a lot of lessons on worry and anxiety that Jesus has for us here. Uh, there's a couple I can't spend too much time on, but here are some, uh, some good principles on worry and anxiety that Christ brings up. For one, in verse 25, uh, he, he tells us to not be anxious about life, about what we eat or what we drink or about our body, what we'll put on. And he asks us the basic question, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, if you are somebody who is a complete, we'll call it a complete naturalist, if you're somebody who has no belief in the spiritual realm at all, and the entirety of life's purpose is in this world, right? then your answer to that question is actually, no, it's not more than that. Life is all about the here and now. It's all about what we eat, what we wear, where we live. It's all about what we can do in this moment. That's what life is, which you can choose to live that way. God lets man go their own way. But you guarantee yourself a miserable existence if you do that. Because you'll never have enough. As people, we know that there has to be something more than this world. Because where the world is going is not a good place. He also tells us in verse 27, something that really challenged me in uh, my earlier days. Was He he asks us, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? He tells us, you cannot change anything by worrying about it. Which when we hear that, it sounds so simple. It's like, obviously, I can't change a thing by worrying about it. That's not going to stop me worrying about it, but it's truth. And it shows kind of the... The silliness of over-worrying about things. Now, I remember my earlier days, uh, I I worried a lot. And I think by worrying about things, it was, to me, the only way I can have some type of control over the things that I didn't know were going to happen. Whether I was going to go to school or not, where I was going to work, I thought by worrying about these things, I can maintain some type of control over my future. And then I read this verse right here, and Jesus Takes that away from me. And he says, nah, you can't change anything by worrying about it. And I felt a little mad at that moment. He took away my, my 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 supposed control. So that moment I was like, oh, thanks, Jesus. I appreciate that. Now I've got more reason to worry. I can't control anything. But in the end, that is supposed to be something that frees us in the fact that we can't change things by worrying about it. So why do we worry so much? He also looks at the example of nature. And he tells us to look at the creatures, look at the world around you. When I think of this uh, passage, I actually think about squirrels because where I uh, serve a church, there's always squirrels in our backyard breaking everything. So squirrels are always on the mind for me. I think about these squirrels and how they live as compared to me. All right, they live much more, we'll call it in a primitive way than I do. They don't have jobs, they don't have income, they don't have 401ks, they don't plan at all for their future. And yet, despite all that, that squirrel is going to be taken care of the next day and will have a way to survive, because it always gets what it needs to come back. And here I sit, where I'm at, and I stress and I worry about where the country's going, where the economy's going, where's my, where's my possessions and their value going, where is that, my security in these things going. And I look at these squirrels, and they live so opposite of me, that they're always taken care of. Sometimes it makes me a little mad at them that they don't have all the stress of having to plan things out. But I'm sure even a four-year-old could come and tell me that I am more valuable to my Heavenly Father than a stupid squirrel is. So why don't I live like it? Why do I always live in fear? If Jesus tells me that my father knows what I need and just as he always cares for the things that we see, he will care for his beloved people. But I think the most important thing that Jesus says about anxiety, I'm gonna go back to verse 25 for this. Just see the first word of verse 25, where it says, at least for my translation, it says, therefore. Now, if we have a therefore, that means that what is being said right now is true because of what has been said right before it, right? Uh, in, the, uh, in understanding scripture, sometimes we like to ask the question, what's the therefore there for? Clever, right? I didn't think of it, but I wish I did. Uh, th- what's the therefore there for? So we go back to before the section on worry and anxiety. We see what Jesus has been talking about. He's been telling us that your heart must be in heaven, not on earth. He tells us that if your heart is filled with darkness and not light, you will only see things in darkness and not light. He has told us that your heart can only belong to one master. It can't belong to multiple things. And now we have a therefore when he tells us about not worrying, which means that for worry and for anxiety, at the end of the day, these are heart issues, which means we will not be peaceful people if we don't have peaceful hearts. One way to put it is this, that your life will only be aligned when your heart is. So we think about what happens if our heart is not aligned with God. If our heart if our hopes, if our dreams are all about things in this world, then we got some bad news because this world is chaos. This world is darkness. And if our heart is not aligned with God, we are at the mercy of our fears. And what a terrible thing to be at the mercy of. I don't know about you all, I don't like living in fear. I don't like living in anxiety and worry. But if my heart and hope is in this world, what else can I expect? This world is corrupted by sin. It does not give us a promise of peace, no matter what it might tell us. But if our hearts are aligned with God, then we are at the mercy of his care. Now that's a much better thing to be at the mercy of. And we see, as we continue to move on in this passage, we see in verse 31 here that Christ reminds us that we are to not be anxious, not to ask worrisome questions, about what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, and what we're going to wear to not worry about these things. But it's not because that these questions are stupid questions, right? These are important questions. These are things about our survival. We do need food. We do need shelter. We do need clothes to wear. These are important things. And as verse 32 even tells us in the second half, our Heavenly Father knows that we need them. He wasn't surprised by the fact that we do need things. But the Lord also tells us that there is a right way to look at these things and a wrong way to look at them. Uh, Look in verse 32, how it starts off. It says that the Gentiles seek after all these things. And to to bring out the full meaning of that verse, it can be translated as saying that the Gentiles live around these things. So the wrong way to look about the possessions that we do need, the wrong way to look at them is by making them our life and by making them our center, because that is what as this text here says the Gentiles do. And when Matthew, our author, talks about the Gentiles, he doesn't just mean an ethnic group. He's not just talking about non-Jewish people. He means spiritual Gentiles, those who are outside of the kingdom of God. What he's saying here is if we revolve our life around the issue of possessions and even the things that we need, if that becomes the purpose of our life, we look just like the world does, which means we'll end up just like the world will. That's not a fate that I want to be a part of. I'm sure it's not a fate that anybody here wants to be a part of. So how do we view the issue of the things that we do need? How do we properly receive these things? We do this by depending upon the mercy of God. Verse 32 tells us that our Heavenly Father knows that we need these things. And then he gives us further application in verse 33. In order to have our needs met, we must see our priorities rightly. In verse 33, Christ tells us the number one priority for his people. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, when we do this, as Christ tells us, we see in the second half of verse 33, there's also a promise there. He tells us that these things will be added to you. What he's telling us there is if we are faithful to him, if we trust in Him, if we call upon Him for grace, for our deliverance from sin, if we call upon Him as children, cry out to a father, we will get the things that we need. There's not a promise there that you will get them in the ways you expect all the time. There's not a promise there that you'll get everything you have always desired any moment of your life. And there are some teachers out there who will tell you that as long as you have enough faith, God will give you anything you ask for. I'm going to be very bold up here. That's just foolishness. That's just wrong. If that's the case, then the disciples and the apostles got gypped because their lives were difficult. They were hard. I'm sure at many times they didn't want to be persecuted and on the run and imprisoned, but they were. Because they served the Lord. They did not serve themselves. And I don't know about you all, but when I look back on my life, even the many times that I have personally doubted God and his provision, he's always shown me. He's always given me everything that I need. He's always been so good. He's not always done everything I've always demanded, but that's probably for the best. He's always giving me a family. He's always given me a place to live. He's given me the things that I need to eat, the things that I need to shelter myself. God is good. Amen. He is good and he always has been. So why do we doubt him today? Our hearts are still filled with worry because we still are challenged with the fact that we have a little bit of ourselves that still wants to serve this earth. But luckily, God is a forgiving God. He is not a cruel master like this world is. He is a forgiving master. So we think about the fact that if we are called to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and the fact that God will care for us along the way, Jesus comes to verse 34 to give us our final application. And he says there, Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Well, that's one way of putting it, huh? <laughs> and Out of context, that verse can uh, almost sound a bit cynical, almost sound a bit hopeless. Like, hey, don't worry about today you got a whole bunch of problems tomorrow. And you got problems today too. So just think about today, one at a time, right? That, that, is not, that does not always give me the immediate peace that I'm looking for. But I think also what this verse is telling us is that we spend so much time to worry about tomorrow, we neglect the fact that there are opportunities to seek God's kingdom today. In fact, to, to put it in a simpler way, the application point is don't think about tomorrow, right? Serve God today. And people, I can't tell you how many of those I have known who have missed out on serving God because they've outthought themselves and out-worried themselves about doing it. I've fallen into that myself. I overthink about, uh, should I go help this person? I don't really know them. Should I go help this person? Am I just going to enable them? Should I go help this person and serve this church? Is it going to take up too much of my time? I outthink myself and I outworry myself of serving God today. And he's always faithful to give us those opportunities. You all have those opportunities as well. You have opportunities today to serve the Lord and serve his people. And if we seek God's kingdom first, that will be our priority. Now, as we begin to come to the end of this passage and the end of our time here, I do want to make a couple points of clarification. Because sometimes people use this passage to preach something that the passage is not trying to say. For one, and I've kind of mentioned this already, this entire thing we've been talking about, none of this is saying that it's bad for you to have money. None of this is even saying, some people would say this, but Jesus never once said that it's even bad for you to have a lot of money. That's not the point at all of what Jesus is saying. Some of the greatest people God has used for his kingdom have been very wealthy people. What he's telling us is we cannot serve wealth. If we do, we put ourselves in the hands of a very cruel master. This passage is also not trying to say that you should never make plans of any kind for the future. I've heard people try to say that this is telling us we can't ever make plans for tomorrow. That's, that's not the case here. For some, actually making plans helps the worry to go down a bit about the future, which is a good thing. Uh, what he is telling us is that our plans cannot be what we worship, because as anybody who has lived long enough can tell you, every time somebody makes a plan God laughs at it right because things will always change our plans are not set in stone what we expect has to be able to be changed as as with as the way that God works out our lives this passage is also not meant to be completely dismissive of a worry and anxiety right uh, I've heard some people preach this passage and basically they tell the people they're preaching to that uh, the cure to anxiety is to take two doses of get the heck over it and then sleep in the morning. That's not the case we see here. Our heavenly father knows we need the things that we need. But what he's telling us is that we cannot ever hope to solve our worry and our anxiety by planning things. He's telling us that our worry should drive us back to the seat of grace where Christ is. Because there we find a savior who is willing to help in time of need. What also should be clear from here is that money and wealth, it's the one one that Jesus talks about here because he knows it's a very common idol. But it's not the only idol, not the only false master that exists. For many people, they have other idols. Some idols might be acceptance, to be liked by people, the fear of man. Some idols might be success, just being good at things. Some idols might be knowledge. But if anybody has those idols, if anybody has those things as their life's purpose, then I encourage them to read the Ecclesiastes book, find out, what the man who had all these things has to say about them, and you'll feel a lot worse about all of your idols at the end of it. Because this man had everything, and he said, it's all pointless. It's all temporary. It all gets destroyed. False idols are false for a reason. They don't ever solve the hole that humanity has in their heart. In the end, what is being told to us here, everything comes back to the heart. In the end, peace, faith, anxiety, wealth, serving God, honoring God through all heart issues. And that means that if we want to address anything, we have to come to the heart. Which, in a sense, is kind of a comfort, because there's very, very, very little we actually control in this world. But if there's something that we do have some semblance of control over, it's where we place our hope in. But we have to ask the question, who here can change their entire heart by themselves? The answer is nobody. Nobody can completely change their heart. It's like when uh, Jesus told Nicodemus that if you want to be in the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And Nicodemus's response was, what what, "What? what? How can somebody be born again? How can somebody rebirth themselves?" And the reality was that. It's kind of a true question. How can somebody do that? The answer is you can't. That is something only God can do, which is why in this passage, we think about false idols, wealth, and worry. We have to be driven back to Christ and to the grace he offers. In the end, this is the reality of what Christ is preaching to us. If we have spent far more time thinking about how we can retire and get on top in this world, but have not spent a second thinking about where our soul is at, then we need to repent. If we spend far more time and energy thinking about how to gather more treasures on earth, but have not at all thought about reconciling with our creator, then we need to repent. Because there's nothing you can do to change the world and to change the troubles it brings. There's really nothing you can do to even change your own heart. Which is why we call out to Christ to give us a new heart. And when we cry out to him and have faith in his saving work, there is always forgiveness. Nothing puts us too far out of his reach. As we begin to come to a close, we're reminded that we must align our heart with Christ. We must trust in his sacrifice we trust in God's mercy, and he will always give us everything that is needed. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.